Good evening. So, in the richness of silence, given that this is now pretty much the middle of the retreat, the richness of silence is really being felt. And sometimes it feels like there are too many words. There are the morning instructions, there's the metta, there's the evening talk. So, I invite you to let the words tonight just waft over you. Relax, soften, receive the words with your whole body. Just listen with your whole body. Not so much with your head, trying to get every last detail. Whatever sinks in, makes sense. Let it resonate in your heart, in your body. Whatever doesn't, let it go. Make it a practice. Keep it simple. No reason to be overwhelmed with too many words. Yes? Okay? Okay. All right. So let's let's get started. So last night in her talk, Andrea talking about wisdom said that meeting dukkha suffering is where wisdom can grow it turns out that meeting dukkha is also where compassion can grow which is the topic for tonight's talk who knew suffering could be so fruitful wisdom and compassion both come out of it. There is a Rumi poem, Rumi being the uh, Persian Sufi poet, translated by Coleman Barks. Translation is, stretch your arms and take hold the cloth of your clothes with your hands. The cure for pain is in the pain. So given that I'm Persian, I'm going to read it to you in Farsi. And then I'm going to give you the nuanced translation that Coleman Barks missed. (laughs) (laughs) So in Farsi it is, Dast bugusha daman khud ra begir. Dast bugusha daman khud ra begir. Marhame in Rish, Josin Rish, Nist. Got that? Yes, you did, yeah. Great. <laughs> so, so this poem, as beautiful and as relevant as it seemed, the translation, it's even more relevant to compassion and the beauty of it. So, the first sentence, the first stanza, is spread your arms, dast bagusha, spread your arms, and take hold of your own cloth, or rather, better translated as your own robe, your own robe. But what Coleman Barks doesn't tell you is that the expression in Farsi is 
دست به دامن گرفتن when you, when you hold someone's cloth when you hold someone's uh, robe you're asking for their help you're asking for their mercy you're asking for their forgiveness you're asking for their compassion so the first line it says grab your own cloth open your own heart of compassion don't ask somebody don't grab somebody else's cloth grab your own cloth ask your own heart to open to compassion and the second part marham in rish josin rish nist marham is the word for for cure for a curing salve that he that Coleman Barks translates as cure. So it's this is the salve and then Marhame in Rish and then Rumi uses the word Rish twice. Marhame in Rish Josaz Josin Rish Nist. The the curing salve for this wound. Wound is Rish translates both as wound and also it can translate as the Arabic word, and this is a play on word, board, is embroidered garment, embroidered, embroidered garment. So basically the garment that you're taking hold of, which is your own compassion, is the only salve for this pain. So there's a lot of play in words and, and, um, and nuances and the Farsi expressions that I hope we could enjoy together tonight and share together. It's beautiful. And it really is that your own, the only, basically the only salve, the only curing salve for the wound, for this, for this wound, is your own compassion. As mentioned both by Ruth and by Philip, the two wings of the bird of awakening are wisdom and compassion, both. They are inseparable. They're strongly intertwined and they're dependent on each other. They provide balance in our practice. If you develop just one without the other, if you think of the bird, either there is no liftoff with one wing or you go in circles with only one wing. Not a good situation for any practitioner. Wisdom without compassion, it's been said, is like riding a flat bicycle. It's rough, it's uncomfortable, and it's very slow not recommended. Compassion without wisdom can also become what's called blind or idiot compassion. So what is idiot compassion? It's also known as enabling. So it's the tendency to give people what they want because you can't bear to see them suffer even if in the long term what you're giving them is not for their benefit is for their harm. So the act might appear compassionate, but in the long run, it increases suffering. So 
as we've been in the instru- in the afternoon Brahma Viharas up to today, uh, we have been offering the practice of metta. Starting tomorrow, we'll start by offering the practice of compassion for the next few days. So you can consider this this talk being um, kind of an advertisement or or coming attractions or or contextualizing um, contextualizing the practice of compassion so you'll be actually be exploring the practice um, the hard practice the phrases how it's done trying it on for size different concentric circles and all of that in the next few days so I won't be per se talking about the practice the how of practice so much tonight because that will come in the next few days. But tonight I will contextualize the practice of compassion, how it fits in the bigger picture of our practice. And why? Why practice anyway? So, so the topics I will cover tonight is what is compassion? What is it? You know, we keep throwing the word around, but we, we should be on the same page. We should have the same operational definition of what compassion actually is. And what compassion isn't. It's important to also know that too, because you're going to run into that in in your practice in the next few days. What it's not, what the near and far enemies are, recognizing them when they arise. And then we'll also discuss why compassion. Why? So before all of that, I want to just tell you a little bit about my own relationship and background um, with practicing compassion, compassion cultivation. So I dedicated about one year of my daily practice a few years ago to compassion cultivation. It's... um, when I was going through a training program at Stanford University, which was the compassion cultivation training to become a, a teacher to teach the curriculum that they had developed, and they stands for uh, Tuptan Jimpa, who is the um, Dalai Lama's translator, as well as many scientists and neuroscientists at Stanford who had done some re- uh, had done research. Um, and and they had come up with this course. So both being trained in that, reading lots of scientific uh, papers on compassion uh, in the secular context, wide works, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which in a way uh, us practitioners already know, but science wants to convince us that it is true. Um, so so spend spend a year um, of daily. A compassion cultivation, um, and I've also taught the that eight-week course to compassion cultivation in various contexts to various people, and and getting a sense of where the blocks are, what flows easily, what works, what doesn't. Also, uh, a couple of years ago, I spent about a month um, on the February retreat exploring Brahma Vihara jhanas and all the insights that arise from, from those beautiful states of the heart. I know some of you are practicing Brahma Viharas 
metta, compassion, mudita, and um, and nupeka this year. And last but not least, it's been a favorite practice for me. It's been one of my go-to practices. I shared with you last time when I gave a talk that I've had a chronic illness for many years that has given me the privilege of a lot of dukkha, a lot of body dukkha. And a lot of times there is no way out of it but to just be with it. And self-compassion in working with the many symptoms and the repercussions of my long-term illness has really been a main practice for me. And I'll talk more about that later when I talk about self-compassion. I'll bring that in. So what is compassion? Again, we think we kind of know what it is, but let's just get on the same page. And and as some of you know, my background is in academics, so it's always important to have a definition first before we, we discuss it, we go any further. To have clarity about what we're talking about. So, so compassion, being with suffering, with an authentic wish for its alleviation. So very simple definition. Being with suffering with an authentic wish for its alleviation. As you see, there are two parts to it. Being with suffering and the authentic wish. Those are two parts which we will talk about more. We'll decode more in a moment. So compassion is both a stance, an attitude, as well as a formal practice. So for me, experientially, having practiced on the cushion, compassion has two main components. And the third component is the bedrock, which the two main components sit on. So two main components, and the third one is like a bedrock, experientially speaking. So the first component is is that tapping into suffering, is being with suffering, is, re- is not running away from it, not being afraid of it, is holding it, is being with the suffering. That's the first component. Acknowledging that this is hard, this is hard, this is hard. And especially with self-compassion, that's usually harder because we tend to underestimate or overlook our own suffering. Like, oh, come on, be a big girl, come on. Instead of, this is hard. This is hard. Just to realize that, to see it, that this is hard. This is difficult. That turns the mind to, to see it differently. It opens the heart naturally to compassion instead of, oh, well, you should be, you know, tough in, you know, working through this and tough it out and don't be a sissy or whatever, whatever language or whatever words we have, we all have our own version, right? Of not seeing our own suffering, of pressing ourselves through it, minimizing that this is hard. This is hard, taking a pause. This is hard, this hurts, ouch, this hurts. The Latin word compassion 
come together, C-O-M, together, and pati, to suffer, to suffer together, suffer together. So that's the first aspect of compassion meditation or compassion cultivation is really acknowledge, see, hold the suffering. But it doesn't end there. That's just one component. Just as importantly is the second component. And the second component is tapping into the goodwill, into the care, into the warmth, into the affection, the heart's desire to alleviate suffering. That is just as important as the first one. And the two have to be balanced. As I will talk about more, one shouldn't get stronger necessarily than the other one, or it will get uh, imbalanced, and the practice will become one of its near, near enemies. Again, I'll talk about this more in a moment. The third aspect for me, practically, you won't, this, you won't see this in the suttas, but this is from a practical perspective, is a platform of spacious and equanimity. So these two, tapping into the suffering and the goodwill and kindness, to be held in a spaciousness, in, in equanimity, to be okay with, with whatever is, so that one doesn't tip into one or the other. Often, compassion the first two components are offered as, as, as being the aspects of it. Experientially, I found that, oh, there is that bedrock of equanimity. There is that bedrock of stability that I feel when I do this meditation. So I offer that for your contemplation. Don't take my word for it. See it in your own practice. See if it's true for you or not when you practice this. So just to put just to put compassion in perspective it's part of the four brahma viharas in in this practice or the four heavenly abodes which are the heart practices in theravada the other three that i briefly mentioned is the loving kindness metta which we have been offering and doing together there is vicarious joy, or mudita, which we will do, and equanimity, upeka. So in the Theravada tradition, the central practice is metta, loving-kindness, which is the sense of gr- friendliness, goodwill, kindness, a feeling of love that is free from reciprocation or, or expectation. Metta is the feeling of goodwill that is expressed when it comes across an object, it comes across a being who is neither suffering, really, really suffering, or really, really happy. It's kind of, I mean, a neutral, a, 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 a being that's in a neutral place. Metta is, is, is that expression of goodwill. May you be happy. You know, we've been doing it together. Um, for a couple, almost a couple of weeks now. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may your life flow with ease. The same goodwill, the same metta, the same kindness, goodwill of the heart, when it comes and reaches 
a being that is suffering, that goodwill becomes expressed as compassion because it's holding the suffering, it's meeting the suffering, and there is that sense of goodwill. The same goodwill, when it comes across someone, a a being that's doing really well, just won the lottery, had a baby, whatever, they're really happy. When that sense of metta or goodwill comes and holds and and, and, um, touches the being that is really happy, that becomes expressed as mudita, as vicarious joy. Equanimity being the fourth Brahma-vihara could be thought of in a couple of ways. One way it could be thought of is that it is the bedrock. It is that caring stability. It's that kind, caring stability that holds all the Brahma-viharas. It holds them all. Another way it's also taught and that could be thought about, is that when there is overwhelming suffering and the mind gets overwhelmed, it's just too much, then then that sense of care can be expressed as equanimity to hold a situation, to hold that, that overwhelming difficulty with ease and spaciousness. So what compassion is not? Now that's the next part. We, we talked about what it is and how it relates to the other Brahma-viharas. What it's not, the near enemies, the first one is pity. Compassion is not pity. Pity is the feeling of comparative, less than. It's, it creates a sense of separateness. With, and distance, which actually gratifies the ego. It's not a feeling of, of the quivering heart that wants to alleviate pain. It, it's the, the, the thought or the feeling is like, oh, poor them with that lot in life. That would never happen to me, right? That, that's pity. It's like, oh, I'm up here, they're down here. Oh, they're suffering. You know, it's, it, it creates distance. That's pity. When... when there is a comparing mind. Whereas compassion is, it could be me. I could, I could be suffering in the same way. It is me. I'm no different. I could be suffering in the same exact way. So besides pity, the other near enemy is grief or sympathetic distress also known as overwhelm or anguish. And that, this one is not uncommon, by the way, for it to come in compassion meditation. When we fall into, when we fall into that suffering. Remember how I talked about the two being balanced, about tapping, feeling the suffering and the goodwill? If we fall into the suffering, if this gets heavier, it can become empathetic distress. It can become anguish. It can become immersion. So that, ha- that feels like immersion in another person's pain without that feeling of goodwill or warmth or care to support it, to hold it, to hold the balance in check. 
It can feel like identification with the suffering of others so much in an unbalanced way that it leads to this anguished reaction. Whereas compassion is the tender readiness of our heart to respond to our own or somebody else's pain without grief or resentment or aversion because the sympathetic distress or grief can actually bring up aversion, can bring up, oh, this is too, this is overwhelming, I'm anguished, I don't want to go there, this is too much, I don't, I don't want to do compassion meditation because it's just too hard. But it's actually what's happening is, is the near enemy, it's that anguish and aversion is coming up. So nothing wrong, just see if that happens, just recognize it if that comes up in your practice. Another thing that empathy, uh, that, that uh, compassion is not, is empathy alone. Empathy is an aspect, is one part of, of compassion, but it's not the whole picture. Because empathy, as it's defined by, by researchers, psychologists, um, is the visceral or the emotional experience of another person's feeling. It's actually the, autonom- it's the automatic mirroring of another person's emotion, like tearing up. So if you've heard of mirror neurons in our brain, it's the mirror neurons that fire and we feel, we resonate. It's em- empathy, we feel their pain. It doesn't have the goodwill. It doesn't have the the kindness to balance the empathy. So empathy alone, just feeling the suffering alone can can veer into empathetic distress or anguish. Compassion also is not altruism. Altruism is an action that benefits someone else. Compassion can lead to altruism, but they're not the same. And also, it's really internally, because externally, sometimes when some things, an action is seen as altruistic, internally, one doesn't know where that action started. It just externally looks like an altruistic act that someone gave a big check, a big donation to a charity, but internally, maybe it was because of a tax write-off. So, so again, altruism is not compassion compassion can lead to 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 altruism but they're not the same finally the far enemy is cruelty and that is pretty clear to see right cruelty is the far enemy of compassion is wanting someone to suffer instead of wishing for their suffering to be alleviated similarly schadenfreude this great compound German word, which is happiness at others' misfortune. That's not compassion. So, so I want to say a little more bef- before I go into why compassion. I want to spend just one more moment into the, the what, so the heady part, before we get into the more heart part of the, the, the exploration, this talk together just to drive the point home really, really clearly 
about the two aspects of, or the two components of meditation. So, so I want to bring a research study of, of um, scientist um, Klimeki, 2012, that's your reference. Um, they brought in people, uh, subjects, and taught them a compassion meditation and then put them in the fMRI. Two parts of their brain lit up. Two parts. One part is the core neural network that underlines underlines the empathy for pain. So that part lights up when you see another human being in pain. That part of your brain lights up. You feel their pain. You actually feel their pain. Literally, it's the mirror neurons. You feel their, it's the feeling into the suffering. With compassion meditation, the second part of the brain lights up too. And that region is associated with positive affect or affiliation. Positive affect, goodwill, kindness, warmth, care. You see, it's the same thing. So remember that when you're doing this practice, as, as you are holding, the, as you're meeting your own suffering or, or meeting another being suffering, it's, it's that goodwill, it's that warmth of the heart, it's that kindness that allows it to be held with ease. One last example is, is from years ago, I was at the International Symposium for Contemplative Studies in Colorado. And uh, so researcher, uh, scientist Tanya Singer was giving an off-the-cuff remarks at that point and saying that what she had done, she had invited uh, Matthew Ricard, who's the monk, um, uh, Dalai Lama's translated. He's also a neurobiologist, photographer. Um, many of you have heard of him or read his writings. A wonderful, wonderful uh, practitioner. Um, and, and Matthew Ricard is, is very well versed in compassion meditation. So Tanya Singer puts him in the uh, fMRI machine and says, okay, I want you to not do full compassion meditation, but just... Um, just contemplate suffering. I just want to see what happens, what part of your brain lights up. Okay, so Matthew Ricards does that, and, and Tanya Singer's, yes, that part, the mirror neuron part, is just the pain part lights up. The, 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 compa- the, the, the kindness, the, the warmth, the care part is not lighting up. So brings him out and says, okay, uh, all right, done. And he says, can you please put me back? I feel terrible. I feel like, uh was empathetic distress. So he says, okay, he puts him, you know, she puts him back in the fMRI, so she, he does the full, you know, meditation, compassion meditation, and both parts of the brain light up, and the, you know, the warmth and the care and the love, as well as the feeling into the pain and the suffering. Brings him back like, okay, that feels better. So compassion meditation actually is supposed to feel good. If it's not feeling good, if it's not feeling warm and kind and and if if doesn't feel like you're in the heaven really realm then maybe maybe there is more emphasis on the suffering bit and not held as much in the care in the wish for the alleviation so keep that in mind bring matthew ricard to mind you may want to go back into the fmri machine and do it some more do it right 
So, so why compassion? Why? Now, now we've talked about what it is, what it isn't. Okay, now we know what it is, all right. Now why? Why compassion? Why? Well, it's the only thing that really makes sense. Really. It's the only response that really makes any sense in this human life. If we didn't have any delusion or dust in our eyes, wisdom and compassion are all there would be. It's the only thing that would make sense, the only response, the only appropriate response that would really make sense. Not jealousy, not hatred, not anything else. Just, it just wouldn't make sense. Not fear. I'd like to read you something from the Tibetan teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche. If, if you think in Theravada tradition, compassion is big, you know that it's even bigger in the, in, in, um, in the Tibetan tradition. So I'll, I'll bring a paragraph in. Because actually, as I was explaining, in, our, in the Theravada tradition, just a footnote that metta is the central hard practice and all the other hard practices start. We start from metta and go to the other ones. In the Tibetan tradition, they start with compassion and go to the other ones. But six of one, half dozen of the other. You know, you get them all anyway, sooner or later, if you practice long enough. So the Tibetan teacher, Mingyu Rinpoche, he um, left... In 2011, he left on a three-year retreat. He just left in the middle of the night, didn't tell anyone. He, he, he had a lot of teaching and a um, big following, but um, he wanted a period of solar practice. And he, compl- he left. He didn't tell anyone about his whereabouts. Um, and he went just wandering and begging for more than three years. Nobody knew where he was. And at some point, someone who knew him actually ran into him and, um, and delivered back, um, in January 2014, delivered back a letter back to his mother so that she would know that he's alive and okay, as well as um, other practitioners and followers. And I want to read you a paragraph from, from that letter. I am wandering without any fixed location, staying in isolated mountain hermitages, and other such places. I have experienced feelings of happiness and suffering, rising and falling like waves on the surface of the ocean. At times, food and clothing have been hard to come by, and I have felt cold, hungry, and thirsty. Even when I have begged for alms, I received nothing but insults and harsh words. At other times, I have received food and clothing effortlessly, without even asking for them, and in my mind, it felt as though I were enjoying the pleasures of the gods. While I have experienced both happiness and suffering, the most important thing is that a deep and heartfelt sense of certainty has arisen in the depths of my being, such that no matter what happens, I know that the true nature of these experiences, their very essence, is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion. 
compassion is what is the only thing that makes sense. And it's, it's not unique to our tradition and our path. Other paths, other traditions, compassion is universal, is a universal human, humankind right, birthright. It, and it's, it's important in this, practice, in, in this path, in any path that leads to, to awakening. Any path that aligns one with, with one's highest intentions in life. Compassion is an important part. I was brought up in Iran, which is why I speak Farsi, my native language, and I was brought up as a Muslim. And in Islam also, compassion is very important. Every surah or sutta, every sutta in the Quran starts with, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. Every sutta, every surah starts with, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. Now, whether you call it God, timeless awareness, whatever you call that, which has no name, it has quality of vast compassion. Why compassion? Why not? It's the path to happiness. The Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Practice compassion. Compassion for others is the path to happiness, to health and well-being. Compassion broadens our perspective beyond ourselves. Again, research shows that depression and anxiety are linked to states of self-focus, a preoccupation with me, myself, and I. Does that sound familiar? Me, myself, and I, me, mine, I, self, self, self. Now, do something for some, someone else. And the state of self-focus, if it changes to a state of other focus, if you're feeling down, and suddenly, say, a close friend or relative calls you for urgent help with a problem, your mood is likely to lift as your attention shifts to helping them. Instead of feeling blue, you'll be energized to help them because that helps you, that, that compassion helps you gain some perspective on your own situation. So if you want to be happy, Practice compassion. Compassion is the path to freedom. I want to quote my, one of my favorite mystics, favorite mystics, Albert Einstein. Our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Isn't that lovely? That's what we're doing in compassion meditation. You know, the, the concentric circles, 
by widening our circle of compassion. Again, I read it again. Our task must be to free ourselves, to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Compassion is like the salve that eases life for ourselves and others. It is the appropriate response to suffering. Compassion is our birthright. We all have it. We all have it. Watch your mind if your mind protests at any point. says, no, I'm not compassionate enough. I don't have it. I don't know how to do it. If I asked you, if right now, as you were sitting, and the child, a child who was hurt, was really hurting, if the child walked up to you right now, what would you do? Most people's response is some variation of comfort the child, lift up the child, hold the child, some variation. That right there is the movement of the heart, compassion, feeling the suffering, feeling the suffering of the child and the wish that comes that wants to alleviate it. I do want to, to tell you about one more experiment. It's too much fun. It's a rat experiment. So there was an experiment done at the University of Chicago with rats. This is good. The experiment was designed to, to um, well actually it's two parts. So there are two cage mates that are transferred to a new cage where one rat was put into a, restrain, a restrainer device, a closed tube with a door that can be nudged open from the side. The second rat roamed free in the cage around the restrainer, able to see and hear the trapped cage mate, but not required to take any action. There are videos on this site, and it's really interesting to see. Maybe after the retreat, I can give you the, the website. So you can see that the, the rat that's free tries and tries and tries to open to help the restrained rat that's like screaming for help. And when it succeeds to open the cage door, the two of them play and do a little victory dance and run around. And <laughs> it's really cute. The second part of the experiment gets even better. So another experiment was designed to give the free rat a choice free their companion, or feast on chocolate. Now that's tough choice for a rat. They love chocolate, apparently. So the two restrainers were placed in the cage, one with the rat and the other one containing the cage mate. I'm sorry, one containing the cage mate and the other one containing the pile of chocolate chips. Though the free rat had the option of eating all the chocolate before freeing its companion, 
the rat was equally likely to open the restrainer containing the cage mate before opening the, ch the chocolate container. Now, this is what the researcher has to say. Professor of Neurobiology, bio uh, Dr. Mason. That was very compelling. It said to us that essentially helping their cage mate is on par with chocolate. He can hog the entire chocolate stash if he wanted to, and he does not. We were shocked. Mason concludes the press release, if humans would listen and act on their biological inheritance more often, we would be better off. <laughs> and I think we share 98% of our genes with rats, so we have the same biological in inheritance. What helps compassion flow? What helps compassion flow? This, this birthright, this biological inheritance that we all have, just like the rats. It's realizing, it's, it's considering our common humanity, our interconnectedness. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it interbeing, or simply just like me, just like me. It's this realization that we are not so different. We're not different, any of us. We all have sorrow and suffering in our life. We've had them. We've had loss. We've lost people we love. Or if we haven't, we will. We've all had illness or will. We'll all age and die. We're not so different. We've all been scared We've all had disappointments, losses, humiliation, the worldly wins. We've all had them, every single one of us. We've all had body dukkha, pain, because we all have a body. We're not so different, every single one of us, every single one of us. This, years ago, I was here at, at Spirit Rock and um, meditating. And I remember going down, walking down to the um, dining hall. And I think I was contemplating at the time, I was contemplating common humanity. And I remember all of a sudden sitting as I was sitting and I was watching one other yogi in the hall, in, in the, in the uh, dining hall. And all of a sudden feels like my heart broke as if I didn't know her, but I could all of a sudden imagine, see, or I could, or the seeing was, was, I could imagine all the sorrow she had. Maybe she looked sad that day, but my heart broke. I didn't know her story, but it felt that she too had sorrows. And then 
I start to look around at everyone in the dining hall. And it was clear to me I may not know their stories. I, I didn't know their stories. I didn't know their lives. But my heart broke for every single one of them. remember weeping. And that hasn't quite left me. And even sitting here today, it's interesting, it feels tender, because I sit in this room with you, and I don't know your full stories. Some of you I have the privilege to, to listen to and hold. Many of you I don't. And we all suffer together. We're, we're in this boat, humanity, boat of humanity together. We're not so different. None of us. That bond of suffering, that bond of humanity. We're sisters and brothers. We're not so different. We all suffer in our own ways, in our own minds, in our own bodies. I'd like to share a poem by the Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye called Kindness. Many of you have heard it. I've shared it many times, and every time it still moves me. So I will share it again. It's a good read. It, it touches beautifully into the idea of common humanity, sorrow, and kindness, how they're really interlinked together. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. 
only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. I'd like to end with words from the Dalai Lama. Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. Let's just sit together and let the words drift away. It is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. these words have been of some service on your path. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.